Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 13 of Attitude Check, the Business Leadership Podcast. This is John Mark, and today we're so excited to have Sarah Humbarger as a guest on this episode. Sarah is an accomplished young professional. She was a young executive, and she has a number of different investments in real estate and in stocks that have paid off, and she's done really well with that. On top of that, she has a lot of experience and wisdom when it comes to females making their way in a male-dominated industry. So you're not going to want to miss what she has to say about that. On this episode of Attitude Check, Brent is flying solo. So this conversation is just between Sarah and Brent. Without further ado, let's dive into this episode of Attitude Check. Endeavor to challenge yourself every single day. Engage with your community, effect change, and produce impact. I'm John Mark Radspinner. And I'm Brent Sabati. And this is the Attitude Check Business Leadership Podcast. We have the conversations that young professionals should be having, but aren't. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Attitude Check, the Business Leadership Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Humbarger. And Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? And uh, let's start off with something that you nerd out about. Sure. Uh, Well, before I introduce myself, I guess, things I nerd out about, (laughs) lots of things. Uh, I nerd out over data. (laughs) I'm like a junkie for data. Um, I always love researching different things. I'm also a gardening nerd. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, so like I bought an aquaponics system recently and like have been figuring out how to grow fish. Not really nerding, just weird. (laughs) Well, we're going to have to table that conversation, otherwise it's going to dominate the whole podcast. But um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. You don't really hear a lot of people being super interested in well, aquaponics, not a lot of people know about that, and just data in general. So um, I guess what's something that you really enjoy about being able to see the data on things? Yeah, so I, I think that data tells a story, and, and I think a lot of times people overlook what what numbers say about whether it's your personal life and kind of what your own personal data looks like, right? Like, where are you in life? What do your finances look like? Um, you know, things like that. But I think also just societal data, and there's so much of it now, but it's the digesting of it that's so important. So, um, you know, I think I tend to be one of those people that get super into demographics and what does the demographics mean for this, you know, for this type of investment and those kinds of things. So it's pretty important to look at. And I like reading. So. <laughs> That's awesome. So can you tell us a little bit more about, well, you're currently, you own your own business. And so tell us a little bit more about how you got there and your journey towards owning your own company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's funny. I was actually thinking about this the other day. So I launched my firm. uh, It's called Living City Ventures. I launched it just this past January. So just a couple of months ago. Congratulations. Uh, I'm still a little bit new to it. And I've had other companies before that have been more, um, you know, investment vehicles and that kind of thing. Um, But this is really the first time that I've, um, I've gone out and and kind of treated it as, as a a true firm that I'm, that I'm launching. Um, But it's funny. I was thinking about this in, and uh, so when I was a little kid, my, you know, my parents asked me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, I wanted to be a singing horse doctor, which is not a thing. <laughs> I was about to ask <laughs> At you all. That. Like, don't even, don't even think about it. Yeah. And so they were, you know, clearly confused by my answer. Um, and, but what I was thinking about is, you know, I've, I've always been the type of person where I don't, I don't like to follow a single path. I've, I've never, you know, had a traditional, like, my career is going to look like this and it's going to have these 16 steps 
steps until I get to the top. This is not how I operate. And so I've always been um, interested in real estate investment. Um, I've always, you know, had had all these different paths that I've kind of explored. And so, you know, that in a in a loose loose connection is how I got to where I am um, formally. <laughs> so I um, I actually started off at university at um, at Belmont University, which is in Nashville. Um, I was a classically trained uh, vocalist in high school and um, thought I wanted to be in the music industry. <laughs> and I learned pretty quickly. Um, so I thought that I wanted to do um, venue management, so like concert venue management, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, realized I don't really like to stay up past like nine, <laughs> which doesn't exactly work well in the music industry at all. Um, but I also realized that I didn't want to be burdened with like doing something that I love, which is music. And having to make that the thing that makes me money and, and is my livelihood. And so that was a really good lesson for me. Um, the other lesson I learned from that is that I really have a, a passion for how um, people interact with places. And so how you know you can draw art and passion and desire and, and all these things from the place that you're actually in. Um, so I ended up making a transition in school um, and ended up getting a degree in real estate and construction management from the University of Denver. So that's where I graduated. Um, um, I also graduated with that degree during the recession, <laughs> so that was fun, uh, <laughs> um, but was very lucky to have the opportunity to work with a developer um, out of college, and so I worked um, building car dealerships <laughs> um, out of college and uh, built 26 car dealerships in almost two years, um, which was pretty crazy and, and really wanted to make a shift um, towards more urban type places. Um, so then my next step was I uh, went and worked for the Downtown Partnership of Colorado Springs. So um, that position was uh, first of its kind for that organization. They were looking for someone that um, had some real estate knowledge, had some investment knowledge, um, but really was personable and could work with small businesses and could work with people who were looking to start uh, enhance or expand their services in downtown. So I took that position, um, was there for about five years, um, grew to a VP level, and um, decided just a few months ago that um, I was kind of ready to take a new leap and, and shift a little bit in my career. Um, so I launched Living City Ventures, which is really focused on um, advisory services for for placemakers. So um, any everyone from you know the small coffee shop that um, is looking to get started in a brick and mortar store to you know legacy property owners, folks that maybe have inherited property over time and don't necessarily know um, what the highest and best use is for that property. Um, so primarily right now I'm doing a lot of consulting, a lot of working with individual clients, um, but I also uh, have my own investments and things that I that I like to to do on the side as well. So I have a side hustle to my side hustle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So can you talk more? Sorry, can you talk a little bit more about the concept of a, a placemaker? Is that I'm not super familiar with the real estate industry. So tell us a little bit more about. Yeah, that. absolutely. So um, so there's this concept of third places, and um, it was it was really you know it was coined, but it's it's kind of that place that's not your work environment, um, and it's not your home environment. It's a place where um, you know it can be a, it can be a coffee shop, it can be a store, it can be a music venue, <laughs> all mm -hmm. those kinds of those places um, that really help you to um, connect with what it is that you're doing, but also to connect with your community. Um, and so really, I kind of developed a passion um, for 
again, how people integrate with a physical environment and how that physical environment can help kind of bring out the best in people and in the community. Um, Placemaking is generally a concept. It's kind of an urban planning type of concept, and I'm by trade not an urban planner. (laughs) Some people are surprised to hear that. But it's really focused on things like, you know, how does your, um, how does a walkable environment influence, you know, your your livelihood? Um, How do things like density of, you know, the built environment and where, transportation infrastructure is placed and all those things, how do they influence um, who you are and the things you do and and how you enjoy your life and and that. Um, I really look at that from more of the private side. Um, So working on, you know, how how does an individual building help to create what it's called a sense of place. So when you're in a a building and you have that wow moment, that's really that feeling of kind of that sense of place. So that's super interesting. And, you know, you, you do hear about that kind of third place areas, um, especially when you hear case studies with Starbucks and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But did you see this opportunity as something that's kind of uh, intrinsic to a place like Colorado, where community is actually a pretty big part of business world? Or do you think this concept would apply to you know, other cities as well that may not have such a, a connected feel to it. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely applies to other cities. And, and a lot of times, too, you know, there's landscape architects and planners and, and a lot of people that are in this industry that are involved with what's, you know, this placemaking. Placemaking itself isn't necessarily an industry. And where I really saw a niche was in um, more, of, it's almost um, like owner's representation services. So um, there's lots of owner's reps that are out there. Um, really, my specialty is kind of around around urban places and infill type of unit or type of lots and and buildings that already exist and how you make that building um, kind of have a second life to it. Um, And so I've had the opportunity to learn from lots of other people and and I'm kind of learning as I go as well, (laughs) trying to figure out, you know, you think you know um, what people want until you start providing services (laughs) and then you find out what they'll pay you for. And that's been an interesting (laughs) lesson. So yeah, it's been great. What's something about the real estate or construction industry that you know you think is really interesting that some other people may not know about? Yeah, um, so I think you know most people, everyone pretty much interacts with a building every day, whether it's your house or your office building or you know just walking down the street. Um, and what I think a lot of people don't think about is the fact that policy and uh, local government decisions and state government decisions and federal government decisions really have a significant impact on what is built around you. Um, I happen to be, I think, lucky enough (laughs) um, to grow up in a neighborhood that was older and a little bit more urban, and that really shaped um, a lot of my childhood experiences. I walked around the neighborhood. I was able to walk to school and, and I could, you know, if I wanted to walk to downtown or take a bus downtown. And uh, what you see now is, um, you know, both on the commercial side and on the residential side, you see a lot of building um, that doesn't necessarily reflect what people uh, naturally desire from a place. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, and I, I happen to live in a suburban area. I've lived in, um, you know, I lived in Highlands Ranch for people who are in Colorado. They're probably familiar with that area. Very suburban. You know, you've got your curving streets and your cul-de-sacs and you've got some trails, but not a whole lot to walk to. And and there's there's a reason for that type of, of environment to exist. There's a reason why we have isolated office buildings and isolated retail shopping centers and isolated housing developments and, and a complete 
inability to walk around between them. And it's because of the policies that were created by our governments, as well as the subsidies through things like the mortgage system and, and all of that, that really have created the built environment that we see today. And really, there's this, I think from a lot of people, there's this desire to have a better connection um, with the places that they're in every day. Um, and that, you know, a lot of times manifests in things like HGTV, where you're, you know, flipping your house and, you know, decorating it with the next greatest trend. Um, I really think a lot of that is a manifestation of the fact that people have a desire to be in better places than what's been provided for us and what we're offered. Um, so that's a lot of what I what I aim to do is to help, um, you know, retrofit the places that currently exist, make them better, focus on those areas that were built out in a way that, that is um, desirable, and also bring that back into the, the places that we've already built <laughs> and provide um, great environments for people. Obviously, Colorado Springs, it's, it's kind of in this weird place where it's growing really quickly. Uh, there's some pushback and some support for it, but overall, Colorado Springs is touted as a, a new place where younger people are moving into, and there's a lot of interest in uh, real estate investing, whether that's on the personal side or commercial. So what are some things that happen around not only Colorado Springs, but the state in general that you see in, in that market? Yeah, I mean, for anyone that's in Colorado, you probably know that it's a really difficult market to buy any type of real estate in right now. And and I, you know, a lot of what I look at when I'm purchasing real estate is, um, is investment property. And so I, you know, I, I did happen to buy a new house last year that I live in. <laughs> we have very different things that we look for in a personal home versus, you know, what we're trying to invest money in and uh, and make a return on that. Um, and it's a tricky market right now. Um, and I think that because there's a lot of people that are buying, um, myself included, <laughs> that are buying, you know, residential rental properties, um, it also has a tendency to make it harder for someone to buy their own residence. Um, and so you see a lot of things changing in the market. Um, they're not unique to Colorado. There's lots of other um, states and, and cities around the country that are really starting to to feel that affordability pinch. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's there are policies and decisions that are made that influence the environments that we have. Um, and a lot of those policies are not super supportive of the development of affordable housing um, and of places that really cultivate community and and those kinds of things. So there's a lot of forces that are influencing Colorado right now. It is funny because. Because I, so I'm a fourth generation Colorado Springs <laughs> resident um, and a sixth generation Coloradan, and my husband is as well. Um, and we've had the conversation before around like, what do we need to do in order for us to be able to stay here and for our kids to be able to stay here um, and to be able to live successful lives and, and afford where, you know, where we're going right now. And you look at, you know, states like California, um, where, you know, there's a lot of generational families there that really their kids can't afford to live in that state. Um, and there's lots of other places like that. My dad's side of the family is from New York. I can't even imagine trying to live in New York. <laughs> it's so expensive. And so, you know, I, I try to take the approach of, of, of thinking about um, investment and wealth in more of a generational um, perspective, but also relaying that into the community. How are we building cities that are generational? How are we building neighborhoods that are generational and that allow for people of all spectrums and of all races to really inclusively live in these cities and not just pushing people out? Um, and that's a really hard problem to solve. And I don't pretend to know the answers, <laughs> um, but it's something I think about a lot. If you look at the data to it, people are becoming less and less interested in actually buying a home. Mm -hmm. I think it's strange because you do see the data on that, but 
when you talk to people and you ask them, would you buy a home if you could? And a lot of them do say yes. Mm -hmm. And affordable housing is a big issue. It's an issue that's near and dear to my heart. I grew up in Hawaii where you know, mm -hmm. median housing prices are through the roof. Yeah. So, you know, as a young person looking to the differences between renting and buying or even wanting to have an impact in their community for things like affordable housing, what do you see is the kind of um, next step in that direction? Yeah, I, I, I wish I knew the answer to that, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I was I was lucky enough. So I bought my first home um, when I was 24 and I was very privileged and, and lucky to be able to do that um, because I didn't have student loan debt. And so I think that a lot of times if you're thinking just about real estate investment, there's a lot of things that come before that. Um, and so one of the one of the things that I've really embraced um, in my adult life is, you know, how, how do I make smart financial decisions as early as I possibly can so that they allow me to make other smart financial decisions later down the line? I may not even know what those decisions are, but I want to try to be as prudent as I possibly can. And I think, you know, one of the other things that we're facing as a nation right now is the student loan crisis. Um, you know, there are so many people that they'd love to buy a home, but they're what they would normally put towards a mortgage is going towards paying off their education. And I, I can't, I, as someone that was not put in that position, um, and was really privileged to not be put in that position, um, because I had support from family, um, to get through college. Um, I, I literally can't even imagine, I don't know how I would have purchased my first investment property, um, and had the opportunity then to leverage that into other properties. Um, but I, what I will say is that I think it's important for people to start as soon as you can. And even if it's small and even if it's in other types of assets like stocks and bonds and putting money into your retirement, it's important to do those things. <laughs> I wish, you know, more people had that kind of mindset, just mm -hmm. starting early, even if it's a little bit, because that's something that's really a, important. A little bit goes a long way. And, and I took the approach of I'm going to be bullish when I'm young because I'm, it's early enough and I can make the mistakes now. <laughs> um, and so even, you know, the first home that I bought, um, I put 3% down, found a like a niche first time home buyer program, probably wasn't qualified to get a loan. And, <laughs> you know, they, they took a risk on me and I, um, I, I got lucky one in the loan that I found, but two, I, I searched for a long, long time to find the right lending program and was able to do that. And I've leveraged my first purchase, my first personal, um, property you know, purchase into a rental investment and leverage that into um, other investments and, and being able to kind of um, kind of snowball that into to a, a greater portfolio. Starting early is so important. And I think one of the problems that a lot of people coming out of college face nowadays is finding a career that they're really interested in or even just finding a job in general to help pay down those student loans. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I imagine it couldn't have been easy for you to go into the real estate industry during that time period of the financial crisis. So, I mean, what, what was that like and what kind of advice would you give to someone who's having a hard time finding a position? Yeah. Um, so the funny story is that my, my parents, um, when I graduated from college, um, they gave me permission <laughs> to live in their house r rent free for six weeks. <laughs> and if I didn't find a job, uh, or if I, you know, wasn't out within six weeks, within six weeks, I was paying rent. And, um, and that was, I was frustrated at the time. I wasn't very happy about it. And I, mm -hmm. I you know, I started applying for jobs, um, the January before I graduated. Um, I did not get a job until the last day of the sixth week <laughs> that I was living in my parents' house. Um, and I, 
uh, was so grateful to be employed, um, even if it wasn't necessarily um, what I had been thinking I was going to be doing or planning on doing. Um, but I learned so much from that first experience. And um, so I'd say, you know, um, it's not everyone has a linear path within their career. Um, I happen to be lucky uh, in that I kind of lucked out in picking an industry that I enjoy <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, when I was in college. But my gosh, I've met so many people that, you know, I have an economics degree and I'd like to go be an economist. It's like, okay, where? <laughs> where is that? I know there are economists. I, that's a terrible example. <laughs> I'm a, I have a philosophy major and I'd like to go be a a philosophy of a philosopher? Yes, a philosopher. Or <laughs> That's, a, a singing yeah, horse therapist. Or a singing horse doctor, right? Like, And I think that, you know, we're... we're encouraged to follow our dreams for so long Mm -hmm. and then you get out and then you get kind of halfway through college you're like wait was this even what I wanted to do or is this even what I'm passionate about and I think the answer is it's okay to change your mind (laughs) Mm -hmm. and it's okay to pursue multiple paths um you know for myself I I some of some of the work that I do is in is in real estate investing. Some of the work that I do is in you know um, more advisory services and professional services. You know, some of it's more freelance, some of it's more entrepreneurial. Um, and I intentionally kind of create these different opportunities for myself um, because if I decide that one isn't working for me anymore, I don't want to feel like I have to start over. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so you know, I think I think try things on. It's okay to decide that you don't like it. That's not really advice. <laughs> Uh, I don't take my advice. <laughs> Just do a job. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> but it was tricky to, to have a real estate degree and come out during the recession. I don't recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> if you have the opportunity to avoid my mistakes. <laughs> so would you say that it's, I, I think it's a common thread that you see where people, they want, like you said, I want to be in finance. You see people coming out with a four-year degree being, I want to manage like, you know, a billion dollars or something mm-hmm. like that. And do you think it's just being able to step back and say, hey, it's going to be a journey. It's going to be a progression. Let's take, you know, the opportunities in front of me now and, and just build that down the road. Yeah. I think one way to look at it is what do you want your life to look like? And I, I wish that I had taken that step earlier on um, because I had this this mindset of like, I want to be a developer or I, you know, I want to go and be a real estate developer. The majority of real estate developers uh, either come from a lot of money, <laughs> like they come from a family background with a lot of money, um, or they come from a development family where, you know, mom or, you know, the parents have a generational business that is development, or they end up working at one of the couple of big firms. It's not an industry that has a ton of jobs in it. And, you know, I'm going through college. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to go and work in development. Like <laughs> no one gave me the reality check of like, <laughs> Hey, you don't come from a lot of money and your parents don't own a development company. And like, how are you going to do that? And so I think it's, it's knowing that you can take, you can take a different path um, and you can explore things that might be a little different from what, you originally thought you were going to do. <laughs> going back to the uh, the real estate side, you mentioned that from the beginning, your mindset was making smart financial decisions and having that kind of build on itself, you know, mm-hmm. so you could do it in the future as well. So did your interest in real estate investing come from the, I guess, your educational background or did it come from a, you know, a financially responsible side? It's probably a little bit of both. I think I I think I fell into studying real estate because I've had a a passion for place. And I've maintained that passion and, and kind of converted that into a career, which uh is cool, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um but I also think you know, I I was naturally a pretty 
frugal person most of my life. Like my dad jokes that it's the Scot in me. <laughs> like I'm so Scottish that I'm cheap and all this stuff. Um, I also, um, I started working really young. Um, so my parents own a business uh, as well. And, um, Instead of giving me an allowance as a kid, they um, put me to work in the family business. Like, re- like I'm not sure if it was legal. <laughs> I won't say that. We won't say their names. I'm just kidding. Um, and uh, so they, you know, I've been paying into Social Security since I was 11. <laughs> wow! Like, like really? Things, yes, I That's... literally got a letter once. I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so scary. <laughs> um, yeah. So my parents put me on the payroll and, um, and that was a really important lesson for me to kind of, I guess, and I, I translate that into real estate in that I, I started saving really early. I started understanding what it looks like for, you don't necessarily get every dollar that you earn. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and understanding that if you want to earn more, you have to figure out how to leverage it. Um, and so I started um, becoming a little bit interested in real estate, probably in high school. Um, my dad had a rental property that he had owned for years, and he had decided to sell it. So I would occasionally, it was in Denver, and I'd drive up to Denver with him and um, help him, you know, paint the walls or clean out the mouse poop from under the refrigerator or <laughs> things like that. Um, but it was fun, and I and I enjoyed um, I enjoyed working with him on that, and I and I saw what he was able to sell that for and what he had bought it for when he was a kid. He was in his 20s when he bought that property. And then he converted that into a commercial property. And so then I was able to see, you know, what does that look like when you own a commercial property and what do the leases look like and and those kinds of things. And then he had also purchased a property that he was planning on redeveloping. Um, He luckily sold it. uh, He purchased it, saw, I think he had a little bit of insight and saw what was coming and sold it right before the recession, which was when I was in late high school, early college. Um, And I also saw kind of the risk side (laughs) Mm -hmm. and and wanting to, you know, make sure that you avoid um, making, you know, stupid decisions, I guess. So that probably is what got me into it, um, kind of seeing it a little bit. And and that doesn't necessarily have to come from family. Um, I think that, you know, I, I was, again, privileged to have the opportunity to get involved with my parents in their business or businesses, plural. Um, and, but not everyone has that opportunity. And so I think um, connecting yourself with with people that are that are leading in, in business, if that's what you're into, um, do that as young as you can. And, you know, find your you know, your friends, parents, or um, people that you can connect with as early as possible. So a lot of people that we come across, they are interested in concepts like real estate investing and just doing something to build a lifestyle for themselves. What's something that you see as a common problem or mistake that people who are interested in that area, you know, first make and first start off with? Yeah, I mean, I think I think not getting educated um, and that that goes for almost pretty much any industry, right? Like if you're not educated on what the norms are, what the practices are, what you're competing against, um, what your strategies are, what your systems are, like really taking the time to learn those things and build those things up from from someone else, <laughs> um, so that you can then, you know, either refine it or, or make your own system out of it. Um, I'm still very early in, in my personal real estate investing. Um, so I, you know, I probably fall into that category as well. Of like what mistakes am I making? <laughs> um, but you know, I do think that, um, you know, it grows for really any type of investment, right? I think we, we all think that we can, that we can outperform the market, (laughs) whether it's stocks or bonds or, you know, putting it into your retirement account or in real estate. And I think a lot of it comes down to you're you're probably not going to beat the market, but don't 
don't buy at the wrong price. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that can pretty much go for anything. So it's like if you could at least just research the the purchasing side of it, you're probably going to be in decent shape. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. So you, you kind of talked about finding someone to to learn from and you know just make sure they don't make the same mistakes and things like that. So did mentorship play a big role in your not only education, but personal and professional development? Yeah, I I have a hard time even using the word mentorship. I've never been um, intentional. Well, I shouldn't say that. I've never been one to say, hey, will you be my mentor? Um, Because I think it implies a relationship that is one-sided. Whereas for me, I've really valued um, surrounding myself with people that know a lot more than me and just being there sort of and like picking up from them along the way and active listening and and kind of just really surrounding yourself by people that are more knowledgeable than you and that have a deeper network than you do um, and I'll say I've I've come to a profound appreciation for my network over the last two months having uh, launched this this new firm um, you know you don't really recognize the value of your network until you need it <laughs> um, and so you know trying to develop a client base and and a base of projects that I'm working on um, I'm, I'm really glad that I did surround myself with those people. And, and there are definitely, you know, uh, people that are in my network that I would say are more mentors to me than others. Um, but I don't have any sort of formal relationship with them. I think having the opportunity to um, just work with people um, that are typically in your in the industry that you're wanting to be in um, and learn from them along the way. Sometimes that does require having a formal mentorship relationship. I just didn't necessarily pursue it that way. So I think that I think that sometimes mentorship is a great thing if you're trying to get into maybe a different industry or if you're trying to get connected into a network that you don't have connections into um, and finding kind of that, that one person that's willing um, and has a, a reason <laughs> to work with you as a mentor um, is really important. It's not really my first step. I think that a lot of people tend to think like, okay, I gotta go find a mentor. Um, and to me, I, I would rather dive into a pool of people where a lot of them can provide different skill sets and different knowledge base. Um, Because even if you do have a mentor, they're probably not going to be able to give you advice on all the things that (laughs) you want mentorship on. Um, They don't necessarily all have the same expertise. And so, um, you know, I know that there's one person that I can call that has really great diverse um, real estate knowledge in a particular unit size and and zip code. Um, And I'll totally call her on that. And then I've got, you know, Know, people that I can call that are planners and I'm not a planner but I'm doing a lot of work that's kind of in planning and I can lean on them or um, you know people that have launched um, firms that have kind of a similar base of services to mine um, I can lean on them to understand you know how do you how do you gain work and how do you how do you work with clients and, and those kinds of things so I think it's you need to diversify um, who you're working with and I think anytime someone goes immediately to I need a mentor I think you're limiting yourself to having kind of a base of of people that are mentor mentor types (laughs) i guess that makes a lot of sense because in my first i guess official job you know besides the little side hustles i used to have as a kid like i feel like i didn't really step up into a leadership position or level or just do better work until uh, he's one of my closest friends today but he came to work for the company and i realized like wow he's he's kicking my butt right now and how much effort he's putting out and i need to step my game up so i guess that's where the phrase you know iron sharpens iron comes from Mm -hmm. so would you say that's kind of 
a good first step to take as far as just looking for those peers around you that can really push you to where you need to be. Yeah, I think I think what you noticed is that there was someone that was inspiring to you and there was a reason for that. And I think that that alone is a reason to get to know someone. And you don't necessarily have to go to them and say, hey, you're awesome. Will you be my mentor? It can be as easy as like, hey, you're awesome. And I just like to hang out with you. <laughs> and it just doesn't come off as, I think sometimes, I, I guess this is my personal perspective. But, um, I, you know, I've had a few people ask me to be their mentor and I've said no to most of them because I don't see it as a two-way street. Whereas if someone came up to me and was like, I just think you're really cool and I want to get to know you, like now I want to be friends with you. (laughs) I'm probably going to give you a lot more information because I'm a big, you know, over, over share (laughs) with people. But if I think that they're trying to have more of a transactional type of relationship with me, I, I put a wall up. So I think what you've like, you know, the case that you described is someone that, that you saw was, was being a rock star and you just wanted to surround yourself with whatever it was that they're doing. Like, follow that. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and you, you know, you said you're friends with that person now. And I think that it's just a more natural relationship. And sometimes relationships can feel kind of forced and mentorship relationships to me can sometimes feel forced. <laughs> I like that concept of having the, the two way street, you know, you're not the only person not necessarily taking, but you know, receiving a benefit from the relationship. What about people who are kind of, you know, on the shyer side, they're more introverts, and they think that they might not have something to really give back to this relationship that they're really being inspired from and learning so much from? Yeah, um, as a not super introverted person, I'm probably not the best person to answer that question. Um, but yeah, I, I can definitely understand where um, it can be really difficult to to reach out to someone, especially if you're it can be intimidating to see someone that's like, oh my gosh, they're amazing. Like this person knows so much and they like, they really know what they're doing and to, to break that barrier and say, hi, I just think you're awesome. (laughs) You can fangirl. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) So I don't know. I think, I think sometimes like recognize when you, and, and this applies to any relationship, right? Like for, for someone maybe that has a harder time just kind of breaking out of their shell, like anytime that you come across someone that is like life changing, whether it's, you know, a friendship type of relationship or a mentorship type of relationship, professional relationship, romantic relationship, whatever that is, I think that like you recognize that moment of energy and it's a, it's a matter of stepping outside of your shell and saying, I don't care what my, my brain might be telling me, like, don't speak to this person, but you do have something to add. Not everyone knows everything. There's life experiences that you've had that that other person hasn't had. And building a natural relationship with them allows for you to share those experiences with one another. And they they may learn something from you. (laughs) So it sounds like from very early age, you kind of were basically a trailblazer in what you wanted to do. You know, you, well, you wanted to forge your own path, you know, so to speak. Yeah, with, you, that's true. You, you didn't want someone telling you this is what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And, you know, that has its own implications to leadership. But did you always see yourself as, you know, going down a leadership path? No, not at all. Um, I really struggled with, some people will be surprised to hear this, I really struggled with like self-confidence as, as a kid. You know, I was, you know, picked on, every girl has had this experience. So for the women out there, like, you know, every girl has their mean girl moments and girls that pick on them and, and that they, you know, it just, it erodes at their self-worth and it erodes at, at your, you know, your 
value yourself value. And that was really challenging for me as a kid. And I, I just, I don't know what it is, There's whether it's just my natural personality or if it was overcoming some of those things at a, at a younger age that I was able to kind of break up break over that. Um, I'm still very sensitive to like, I, I never want to come off as, as having, you know, a big ego or, you know, I, I, as someone that's pretty, you know, <laughs> exuberant and confident now, like I never want to make someone feel like, like they're being overshadowed and things like that. And I have my moments where I'm like, holy cow, this is not the person that I want to be. And I think that, I think leadership comes really from self-awareness. And so while it probably was hard for me as a kid to be so hyper aware of myself and, and, you know, to a point where I didn't feel like I was worthy of friendships and love and things like that as a, as a little kid, um, and kind of going through the process of overcoming that, I think that that probably had some effect on my kind of natural leadership. Um, when the, the funny story, the, the moment where I realized that I probably had some, some natural or like just automatically there, like leadership type of tendencies. Um, so in college, I uh, uh, I was in a sorority, not by choice, because they had pizza. <laughs> so I literally joined a sor- I like signed on the dotted line because they gave me a slice of pizza, um, which pizza will get me to do anything. <laughs> um, so it's funny. I, so I joined the sorority. I had no intention of ever doing that. It was not my not my MO. I'm like, not that kind of girl and just not into it. And then like three weeks later, you know, they have pasta night and it was like, who's president? I'm just like, Sarah. (laughs) It wasn't actually three weeks. It was like a year later. But, um, so I ended up becoming president of this sorority. I'm like, holy cow, my life has changed. Like overnight I went from, you know, this super quirky kind of goofy thing (laughs) to like president of a sorority, like friends of mine from like childhood and stuff were like, so confused. <laughs> I'm still confused by it. But I do think that I, I'm i not afraid to kind of say what needs to be said, which sometimes is harmful. <laughs> um, but I also, you know, I, I do, I guess I probably do have some natural tendencies towards leadership. And I think some of that is just, you know, overcoming, overcoming a lot. I, you know, I went through some really challenging, um, some really challenging things kind of early in college, some, some personal things that really made me realize, like, I have one life to live. And I am going to do everything that I want to do in this life. And if I died tomorrow, I would have no regrets. And taking that mentality to life kind of makes you not care anymore <laughs> about, you know, is, well, you know, is someone just the overthinking some of that stuff. I think sometimes people just get too in their too much in their own head about what's my next move or should I should I do this or should I not? And sometimes you just have to go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. You don't have all the time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so that's super interesting. Um, that story really resonated with me because that's basically the way that my girlfriend joined her sorority. <laughs> Pizza? Nice. She came for food and then she's like, well, I guess I'm doing this now. Yeah, they're but, pretty good at that. <laughs> <laughs> but from it's kind of interesting because people who are not familiar with Greek life and that sort of thing, you know, you see the, the movies about it and mm-hmm. TV shows and you think it's just, you know, party all the time. But there's actually a lot of layers of complexity and a lot of rules that they have to follow and just leading being a president of an organization of that many people in college mm-hmm. is not an easy thing to do. So yeah, what was that like? And what kind of 
are the biggest lessons that you had from that experience? Yeah, I actually, I, I credit my sorority experience so much. Like I, I give a lot of credit to it, but I don't, I don't verbally give this credit very often. <laughs> like i sometimes I'm a little embarrassed by the fact that I was like very pretty active in a sorority in college. And, and I love um, the friends that I made through that experience. And like, it was a, is a really positive experience for me, but it does have these connotations of party girl or, you know, you paid for your friends and like, there's all all these things that that kind of come along with it and really I mean like I learned how to run a meeting from being president of my sorority I learned how to have a board of directors from being in a sorority I learned how to put together a marketing plan from being in a sorority like I I think I learned more skills that applied to my more corporate career by being in a sorority than I did from being in business school <laughs> which is saying something because um, that's not really what it's there for per se but you know and you you learn how to work a room um, I still like here's a silly sorority story um so there's this concept in in sorority recruiting um where you know you've got all the girls that come for recruitment and everyone's in a room and you um i, I feel like i'm revealing a secret but i don't think it's really a secret <laughs> um so there's this thing called bumping and so you like you literally have this system for how you talk to all the women in the same room, like you've got hundreds of women in one room and you have a system for how everyone ha has a conversation that's valuable. And you learn this. this is like a learned skill of like, how do you stand in a room in a conversation so that someone can easily float in and out of the conversation? How do you like take those social cues when someone's ready to like end the conversation and take that naturally and go into the next conversation. Like how do you gracefully exit a, a conversation? Like these are things that you don't learn in school and you think that they're silly when you're doing them. Then you take that to a networking event and you, you like walk into a room full of men who all have their backs like really closed in on these circles <laughs> and stuff like that. And like you go and have the conversation with someone and position yourself in a way that someone else can get, enter into the conversation and you have literally just created a new network connection by body positioning and it's something I learned in college <laughs> yeah. or things like I learned how to walk in heels <laughs> like it's an important especially for women um, you know the, while it's superficial it's really important to know you know when when are certain styles appropriate when is it appropriate and not appropriate to be wearing certain types of shoes like all those things that it again it feels very superficial but it does impact your how you're perceived within the corporate environment um and man i i thought it was such a joke when i was doing it in college and now i'm like i think every woman who thinks they're gonna have a professional career should have to be in a sorority at some point even if they quit like do it for a year <laughs> see the the funny thing is i'm actually kind of for that idea because my girlfriend uh she's studying engineering mm -hmm. and every once in a while i'll drag her along to a networking event because free food and you know that's how she right, got pizza. there so um but it i joke with her all the time like you're better at this than i am and you're in engineering so engineering they never go out networking so why are you so good at this but it, it's kind of interesting to see the the lessons that they are learning from being in an organization like that mm -hmm. and i love the points that you touched on as far as just you know the lessons for the young female professionals out there and navigating those waters so Obviously, um, construction and real estate isn't something you hear a there lot were like, of girls. There were like four women in my degree, so <laughs> it's not you know <laughs> I'm an anomaly. <laughs> you don't see little girls dressing up as princesses going, "I want to be in construction." You know what was that like, and what kind of advice would you have for yeah. you know? <laughs> 
young female professionals wanting to get out there and, you know, put their name out there and make a big splash? Yeah. Um, so I certainly picked a male dominated industry. I think my parents were completely confused when I picked this degree. They're <laughs> like, you're doing what now? <laughs> um, yeah. And, and so when I was in school, one, the, the program was a lot smaller. Um, the years that I was there because of the recession, I think they just had a lot of, a lot fewer people enrolling in like wanting to study real estate because the real estate market was falling out from underneath everyone. <laughs> so, you know, there were, there were only 12 of us in my, in my entire program, um, the, the couple of years that I was there and there were very few women. Um, I think there were four, I think technically there were four of us that were in that program and it was like, you have to stick together. <laughs> like, you know, you, you, uh, there's, I tend to be one of those people that like, I've always gotten along very well with men. I don't, you know, have, uh, there's some women that just don't, I don't know, don't understand how men operate. I, I like to think that maybe I like have a better, like tap into their brain or something. I have no idea. I joke that I got my degree in male management. Uh, <laughs> my husband doesn't like that very much. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that um, you have to be aware of the fact though, that you're, if you're entering into a male dominated industry, like engineering, like construction management, um, you know, there, there are industries that, that do tend to be really male dominated and there are different expectations within, within those industries. But the other thing that can be really challenging is that, um, those industries are very aware of the fact that there are very few women. And so um, they almost make too much of a push <laughs> to get women into those industries. And that can be really challenging too, because then you're faced with um, women peers that may not actually be as qualified as they should be um, mm -hmm. for those positions. And that's like a not super fat, like that's a very not feminist thing for me to say as, as someone that's like a feminist. Um, but, you know, I, my, for my husband's an engineer. Um, I know a lot of, you know, women that are in, you know, some, some pretty male dominated industries. And a lot of times, you know, there's, um, there tends to be a, a couple of women that, you know, they, they got the job because, Hopefully they were, you know, they were qualified for it or, or whatever, but, um, but then the performance isn't quite there. Um, the same, the same almost goes towards like women when they have children in their career, like there are different priorities there. And I think that women just unfortunately have to be hyper aware of the, of the perception that they're, that they're giving off as well as the value that they're providing for that company. And unfortunately in this day and age, the, the reality is that you have to provide more value than your male counterpart, most likely. Likely. <laughs> so um, those are just things that you kind of uh, learn along the way. And it's un unfortunate. And I don't think that that's how um, how it should be. But um, that's the reality that I've encountered um, is that you it, you have to be a badass. <laughs> yeah, sort of. So I mean, that's definitely you see something kind of across the board with the whole with different minority groups in the workplace. And especially when you hit that executive C level mm -hmm positions, just running into those situations where they're trying, like you said, a little bit too hard to fill those gaps, so to speak. But yeah, I think that's just a really, I, I hate to use the word empowering because I feel like it's overused, but it's, I think it's a really great attitude to have just being like, hey, this is what the field is today. Hopefully it's not always like this, right. but you know, I'm just going to go in and, you know, kick ass anyway, basically. Yeah. I mean, the cards are stacked against you. And so it, it just, it, it's unfortunate that that's the reality of it. If you're going to do it, 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 it goes for any industry, like you should rock. And there's a reason why there's a lot of women out there that, I mean, you're, you're starting to see 
like university enrollment is being, you know, there's a lot more women that are enrolling in university. There's a lot more women that are over, you know, outperforming their male counterparts in both school as well as in industry. And and I think the reason for that is that we have to, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, or we've had to for a long time, and that may change someday. Um, but I think you know, there it literally takes one one female, you know, peer counterpart not picking like taking up the slack or not, you know, not performing as well as as people think that she should to make everyone think that not everyone, but to make certain people think that you're not going to perform as well either and you just you have to fight that by being awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, go be awesome ladies. <laughs> So that's the, the overall, you know, theme of today. Just just be awesome. <laughs> just be rock stars. <laughs> so tell us about a time, whether that's personally or professionally, that you faced some sort of challenge or adversity and how did you overcome that and what are some key takeaways that you have from that experience? Yeah, um, I, I hate to say it, I don't think I really have a specific example. I feel like as, <laughs> I just talked about this, but like as women, your whole life is adversity. <laughs> Not really. I mean, there you know, everyone's kind of faced with their own their own challenges and I think I think some of it comes down to um, I think the biggest things that I challenge are just like who am I as a person, being hyper aware of the way that I do things, the way that I could change things to be, you know, perform better and, and things like that. Um, but like, you know, I, I often find that <laughs> I'm like late for everything. <laughs> if that counts as an adversity, I don't think it does. But like, I think sometimes like, I guess I should say like some of the failures that I run into, I, you know, I think for me, it's hard to pinpoint like, oh, there was this one thing that happened and I rose above and I made it great thing. And then I was awesome. But like, I run into daily struggles around, you know, did I give, did I estimate enough time to perform this task? And did I stay on task? And, you know, or did I get distracted and, you know, all of a sudden start whatever, get on Facebook or something silly like that. Um, So I think that there's those daily struggles. and, And I tend to be one of those people where like, I kind of move on really quickly from you know, whether I made a mistake or, you know, was faced with failure or faced with some sort of like true adversity, I I kind of, I'm that person that's like, okay, that sucked. Or like, oh, I totally messed that up moving on. And then I move on. And I think the thing for me to, I have to remember to like learn from those experiences or, or even recognize and acknowledge like, wow, that was, that was a crummy situation. Like I was faced with something that I really wasn't, wasn't prepared to deal with and like actually take that moment to acknowledge like that was hard. What would I do differently the next time? And like learn from that experience versus the just, Oh, that sucked. <laughs> like, Oh, I made a big mistake. <laughs> All right, moving on. Like, let's keep going. And I think that that's important to just remember to like, don't brush it off too quick. Like don't dwell on the mistakes that you make or, or even, you know, the adversities that you face. Cause that dwelling is not going to get you beyond um, those things that you face, but, but also taking a moment to like check in and say like, did that suck? Yes, that sucked. <laughs> How can I change this from sucking in the future? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I really love that concept because you see in today's day and age, you know, it's romanticized with those, you know, like, oh, I, I fell so far, but then I picked myself up mm-hmm. and and there's great things about that too, but I think it's really understated just being able to, you know, say, hey, I'm minimizing those highs and lows and I'm just like slowly, you know, building something just a little bit every day, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, just, I'm not going to check Facebook for, you know, half an hour today. 20 minutes. Or, <laughs> 
I actually don't really struggle with that that much, but I know it's a common example. Yeah, but just finding those little victories and, you know, slowly building upon that. So I think, you know, that's a, a great point that you make. And I'm, I'm really glad that our listeners got to hear that side of it too. John Mark gives me a hard time for saying this all the time, but I really wish I had another two hours to, to go over everything <laughs> sure. because it's been a super interesting conversation. But we're going to just jump into some of our bullet questions and uh, go from there. What is one resource that you use in everyday life that's helpful to you? Definitely um, like budgeting and software for just tracking your finances. Um, I, I think that's so critical and it's really easy to check out um, because you're like, oh, I know I'm overspending, but like, eh, it's fine. I'm going to go get another beer. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it's so important to just keep tabs, not just on like your spending and your goals and those kinds of things, but also to like look out long term and, and look at, you know, if, if you do have um, investment and retirement goals and things like that, like be able to check in on it, you know, once a week, even like know what you're doing <laughs> because, you know, you can go two weeks of overspending and you've just blown your entire month's budget. Um, so I think that that's a really critical thing. The, I have a, I have a second one, um, a good mattress. Holy cow. So like, <laughs> I know that's silly, but um, I am like a big proponent of sleep. Um, it, it cracks me up. You always hear the like CEO that's, oh, I wake up at four in the morning to get my best work done, you know, at 2 a.m. And, and they sleep like four hours a day. I'm like, I, these people aren't real. There's no <laughs> way. Um, I'm a big proponent of like, get your eight hours. <laughs> you will be a much better person for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any recommendations on one certain budgeting apps to use and two, like what kind of mattress, what mattress do you use? <laughs> well, we, we splurged and got a Tempur-Pedic because my husband has some back pain okay. and it's been amazing. So I, I highly invest, I highly recommend investing in your bed. So they're not um, joking about those commercials. No, they're great. It's like a fantastic bed. Um, okay. And then on budget. So I use um, personal capital. Um, that's my preference, but I think there's lots of, you know, everyone has kind of different goals and different priorities with their financial life. The thing I like about personal capital is it allows you to track like your net worth and your investments and your individual holdings um, a little bit better than some of the other apps. But there's, you know, Mint and You Need a Budget and like all the Dave Ramsey, like they have, he has his own budget. So I think just find whatever works for you. It can even just be spreadsheets um, and just keeping track of, of every penny that you spend. But um, I think the more like your spending tells a story. And I, I like to say that like you vote with your dollars. And for me, like I have no problem with buying a $4 loaf of bread at the French bake, you know, French bakery down the street from me that I, I don't want them to go away. Like I want them to exist forever. Um, and so like I'm voting with those dollars, but then when I see that like, Oh wow, I spent like $200 on at Amazon and I don't even know what they got. <laughs> like that's a problem. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I just think, um, keeping track of your spending is really important. So what's one book that you would recommend? Um, I had to write this down because I have so many books. Um, so I actually have a couple, but, um, the one, but especially for women, if there's any women that are listening, um, the one book that I read recently in the last couple, like year or so that like was amazing to me. Um, it's called The Power of Women at Work. It's by um, Sally Krawcheck. And she um, she's a um, she started an investment or basically a robo advisor called Ella Vest. Um, but it's really focused on like how women are different in the workplace, um, how you can become stronger in your in your professional life and in your career. Um, but also kind of how do how do you get to a position where you're willing to take 
those risks and start investing. Um, and so I, I really love that book. So I would highly recommend it. So Sarah, thank you so much for being on here today. And I've really enjoyed this conversation we had. And I'm sure John Mark is kind of sad that he got to you know, miss <laughs> out on this time as well. But uh, share just one parting piece of wisdom with us, a good way to connect with you, and then we'll say goodbye. Oh, man, I have so many pieces of wisdom. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I mean, I think one thing uh, that I really try to, to implement in my own life is is life is really not a linear event. Um, while it feels that way because you go from age zero to however long you live, you know, it's it's not, you know, you go from here to here and you get lucky and get the rainbow trail that accelerates you to where you think you want to be. Like, I just think that you have to look at life as, as much more of an adventure and, and live it out and have lots of different paths and know that some will have dead ends and some will be pitfalls and some will, you know, get you to the top. But, um, if you're looking at it as one trajectory, you're going to be disappointed. (laughs) Um, and then to reach me, um, I do have I just launched my personal website. I don't have my business site up yet, um, but it's uh, sarahhumbarger.com. So that's H-U-M-B-A-R-G-A-R is how you spell my last name with an H <laughs> on Sarah. This has been just a great episode, like I said, and uh, thank you to all the listeners for viewing in. And this is Brent, and we'll catch you next time. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Attitude Check with Sarah. Something that stuck out to me was at the end when Brent made a comment saying, oh, I bet John Mark is sad that he missed this conversation. I definitely am. I always love sitting down with Sarah and having a conversation with her. She's very genuine and she has so much wisdom and there is so much that each of us can learn from her. We are so thankful that Sarah was able to be a guest on this episode of Attitude Check. Be sure to check out her website at Sarah S A. R-A-H, Humbarger, H-U-M-B-A-R-G-A-R.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-H-U-M-B-A-R-G-A-R.com. SarahHumbarger.com. You can find a little bit more information about her and her experience and um, the best ways to connect with her. If you like this episode of Attitude Check, be sure to connect with us either by email, which is attitudecheck.com podcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message on Facebook and be sure to like our Facebook page to stay up to date on all things attitude check and hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast hosting platform. Be sure to check back every first and third Tuesday of the month for another episode of attitude check. Thank you to all our loyal listeners and we'll catch you next time.